All right, welcome. This morning we want to um, continue to study the life in the body, what it looks like to to uh, follow Christ and to live within His body, the church. Much of what we've been discussing um, has been around how we as sinful human beings can live together in God-glorifying love and unity. One of the things that you notice in each of these um, subtitles, I guess, of each class, they all have the word unity in them. And that is because our responsibility is to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that is a, an active active uh, command, not something that we do passively, but at the same time we depend on God for that. Now, there are some things because, that, that come into to play that that um, actually will damage and threaten unity. And that's because we have sin that abounds within each one of us. And so there are going to be times when we are prone to disunity, disharmony, disharmony and uh, we can act harshly towards one another and act out in self-righteous anger, destroying the unity that we have been called to live in. But thankfully, the Bible has shed light on this issue where where we are lacking when we come into uh, times of disunity. And so, how do we respond to unrepentant sin? How do we respond when someone is living in in unrepentant sin? And the Bible calls us to what what we know as church discipline. This is the biblical response to unrepentant sin. This is not some sort of witch trial or scarlet letter idea. But actually, it's a positive thing. Church discipline is for our good. It's for the good of the person, even. And um, that means that that we need to be speaking the truth to one another in love. It means that we protect our church from serious unrepentant sin, which brings disgrace to the name of Christ. How often have we seen churches that have smeared the name of Christ, um, you know, through some sort of slander or something because of, uh, or just some some open, serious sin that took place that was not handled properly. Um, discipline helps preserve the reputation of Christ to the watching world and to the watching church. That is, when we participate in discipline, we actually help ourselves out to, sh- to help each other see the seriousness of sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines those whom He loves and He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. See, the purpose of discipline is actually righteousness, isn't it? It's not, it's not punishment primarily. It is actually uh, it's painful at the time. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, Hebrews goes on to say. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. And so this morning we want to consider ways that the Bible instructs us to practice church discipline and how a proper exercise of it actually promotes unity within our church and protects Christ's reputation. And we also want to think how each of us bears the responsibility in this process. We don't just say, well, we'll just pass that on to the people who are paid to handle those problems, the pastor, so he can handle all the church discipline issues. But I, but I want you to see that this is a responsibility of each one of us. So let me pray, and then we'll look at 
um, some uh, some preliminary topics about church discipline. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, Jesus Christ and thankful for how deep His love is uh, for us and how deep Your love is for us, that You would give Your only Son as a ransom for our sin. We know that we couldn't um, meet up to the demands that You have for us, and so we can only uh, accept Jesus Christ in our place, and we're thankful for that. We want to honor You through the way that we live, and, and we want to honor You in this life in our body. And so we pray that you'd help us to pursue righteousness and holiness. And even if it means uh, practicing church discipline, we pray that you'd help us to be confidently um, going about our business and, and obeying you in this way. We pray you give us understanding this morning and, and remove the hostility that we naturally have towards the Scripture and these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, two kinds of discipline. Two kinds of discipline, formative and corrective. Anyone want to take a shot at what these are? Think about it in terms of parenting or maybe you know, a teacher at a school. What would be formative discipline versus corrective discipline? Can you explain those two? Okay. And then corrective would be? Okay, good. Um, formative is is by far the most frequent kind of discipline that we part that we participate in. It's uh, it's when we come together and and hear teaching. So right now, um, I'm practicing church discipline on you. I'm forming you through through discipline. I'm I'm helping you to see the the truth of the scriptures. You do the same to me when you come and encourage me and strengthen me in my faith and and um, challenge me and and so on. Those are formative types of ways. We do this with our children just through normal teaching. I hope all of the teaching that we do with our children isn't all corrective discipline, right? It sh- there should be lots of formative discipline going on, and that's just uh, through the, the simple means of instruction and teaching. And the more we engage in formative discipline, the less we need corrective discipline. Now, it's always going to be there again. We're, we're sinners, and we're going, to, we're going to sit, and we're going to need corrective discipline at times. Um, but corrective discipline is when a person is, has fallen into sin and they need to be warned or they need to be drawn back. And it's where we have to say to someone, hey, Tim, I, I think you're wrong there. Or Sally, you need to talk directly to that person that you're complaining about instead of talking about them to everybody else. You need to get things right with them. Or, you know, uh, Mary, I know that you're claiming to be a Christian but we've got to treat you like a non-Christian because of your immoral activity. You know, because you're living in immorality and you're unwilling to repent, so we have to treat you like an unbeliever. So that, that would be more the corrective discipline. Formative discipline is preventative. Um, we could think about it, if we want to think about it like health in our body, the formative discipline would be like eating and exercising. And corrective discipline would be like all the things that happen at the hospital, you know, surgery and and some kind of treatment that has to take place because we didn't prevent these things from happening. 
And um, so, so those are the two kinds of discipline. Now, what, what is the purpose of corrective discipline? What we're going to focus on, by the way, is corrective discipline. Okay, we, we're, we've spent some time talking about encouraging one another, and actually we're going to spend some time about that, uh, looking at that next week as well. So that's kind of the formative side. This week we're spending our time on the corrective uh, side of discipline. So first, why, what is the purpose of it? It's for the good of the person, isn't it? Discipline is actually a loving thing. You know, we think of discipline like, man, we're really, we really have to, to, to be unloving. We're, we're going to spend this time being unloving to this person while we discipline them. And then when they repent, then we'll be loving to them again. I, I think of it like those parents who, who try to, to delineate or distinguish between um, you know, the discipline side of their parenting and the teaching side of their parenting, as if one of them's not loving and the other is. So, uh, honey, I, I, have to, I have to discipline you now. Okay, but then after that, then I'll then I'll love them. Okay, then I'll love you. But but really, to discipline our child is actually to love them. In fact, Proverbs says the opposite uh, of what we tend to think, and that is, if we don't discipline our child, we hate them, don't we? We hate our children if we don't discipline them. And the same thing I think is true within the church. The most loving thing that we can do to a person is point them to the truth. And. Um, and so, at times, that means that we're going to have to talk to them about their sin, specifically unrepentant sin. Second, it's for the good of other Christians, right? As they see the seriousness of sin and its consequences, we don't want to give other people the wrong idea about sin, and and it's okay to just participate in whatever kind of sin we want to and just go on living as if you know God's grace will abound. It's okay. I can go on sinning so that God's grace abounds more. We want to give people the right impression about God's seriousness about sin and our church's seriousness about sin and its consequences. Third, it's for the health of the church as a whole. It's helpful for moral purity within the church. We allow these things to go on. What tends to happen with, with, um, with immoral behavior? When I say immoral, I don't just mean sensual. But, but any kind of... Uh, disobedience what what tends to happen when those things go unchecked it's like an infection right it starts to spread to other people it's like well if it's okay for them then it must be okay for me to disobey in this area and so when we practice church discipline it actually binds us together in unity as a church number four it's for the witness of the church church discipline powerfully protects our corporate witness in evangelism. Imagine in 1 Corinthians 5 when the immoral man is um, living in sin and seemed to be boasting about it and the church is not doing anything about it. And what would the watching world think about something like that? I mean, he's having a relationship with his father's wife which apparently was unheard of uh, even among pagans. And so the, the people in the community have a wrong idea of what God accepts, what God likes, when we allow that kind of thing to go on unchecked. Then fifthly, it's for the glory of God as we reflect His holiness for the reputation of Christ. We are like a storefront storefront display of God's character. How do people see who God is most clearly in this world? Well, obviously the Scriptures, but as the Scriptures are being lived out in our lives, 
Many people don't even actually get to the Scriptures. And so, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, the only Scripture they'll ever see is or hear is the one that, that you give to them. And um, it's, it's our lives that, that they're watching. Now, obviously, they can't be saved through watching someone's life, but they need to actually hear the Gospel and believe and repent. But, but, the, church, or, but the world is, is watching. We want to be a good representation of who God is. Alright, so how do we do this? How do we exercise church discipline? I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about how we should exercise church discipline and and um, what our individual responsibility is. Turn to Matthew 18 with me. Matthew 18. One of two times that Jesus used the word church in this Gospel. The first is in Matthew 16. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And here's the second one. It's in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. So, what if someone sins against you? This is what we're trying to think about. This is a a personal sin, so to speak. How do we react when someone personally sins? Do we just kind of give them a piece of our mind, refuse to talk to them? Um, Do we do do nothing and just kind of allow resentment to build up in our heart? What happens when someone sins against us? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 15. Let someone read verses 15 through 17. Alright, so there are four steps in this process. The very first step, when someone sins against us, is very simple, is go to him. Maybe we don't build up a, you know, a, a lobbying group that, that's going to agree with us. We just go to him. We, we go to the offender, and that's, that's your blank, by the way. Go to the offender, and... Talk to them about their sin. And the goal is that he listens. The idea there is that he listens and responds, that he actually repents. The goal in all these, by the way, is restoration. It's not punishment. It's not um, you know, punitive. It's, it's for the purpose of restoring the person. We, want, we don't want to get to step four. We want to get to step one, and we want to see them repent. And so... Um, let's think about this in more detail. In most cases, when we talk to the offender, that will resolve the dispute without need for involvement. Okay, so our goal is to see them repent. And so if you see someone that's living in sin, okay, that they have, this, this one specifically, is that they have sinned against you. That's what Jesus says. If they've sinned against you, then you go to them. And you know, I think that this happens often, and and we we don't even think about it very much because we just go to the person, we talk to them, and it's it's over. the 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 reason that we tend to find out about these things is because they don't get handled properly. We don't go to the person, 
we instead go to other people. Or we don't go to the person as a result. The person continues in sin. So I think we do this a lot, and I think that's great. Um, But let me just give you a few thoughts um, from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. He says, how should we go to a person? Because we we have to check ourselves. There's lots of uh, texts we could go to. I'm going to draw your attention to at least one. But how should we um, prepare ourselves before we go to a person who has sinned directly against us? First, pray for the person. Oops. Pray for the person. All right, pray that God would be growing that person spiritually. Isn't that the goal? That don't you want to see them respond and repent and grow spiritually? If that's the goal, then pray that God would do that. Because without uh, without God's help, you know, we labor in vain. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Pray that God would soften their hearts. Second, make sure that you have just cause to go to the offender. You know, our minds can be very deceptive. And um, so pray and think carefully about whether you have a clear biblical basis to go to this brother or sister to show them their fault. We can't take this lightly. We shouldn't just, you know, ignore all these things. But don't go up to a person and say, you know, I think you're arrogant. You need to repent. Well, you need to have clear evidence that they've actually sinned against you. This is what Jesus is talking about specifically. Um. So, so prayerfully consider whether you have, um, whether they have done this, and then also think about yourself. Have is there any fault that I bear? Is there anything for which I need to ask forgiveness for? Remember Matthew seven, Jesus said, "Take the plank out of your own eye, or the beam out of your own eye, before you go after the speck in your brother's eye." We tend to be blinded to our own sin, and it's easy for us to make a big deal out of other people's sins when we haven't even dealt with our own. So make sure that you have just cause. Whoops. All right. Third, examine your own heart to make sure your motives are proper. Examine your own heart. Make sure that you're not going to the, the offender out of anger or revenge. Remember, Jesus, or, yeah, God says, I, revenge is mine, I will repay, the, says the Lord. Right? It's God's to... To, ours is not to take out retribution on somebody for something they have done. Our responsibility is, is simply to show them their sin. Take them the mirror of God's Word. So let's make sure that our hearts are right before we do this. Fourth, don't talk to others about the offender's sin simply to make yourself feel better or to get a sympathetic ear or to lobby for your side. Now, if if there's something unclear about what happened and you know before you go to the person you want to talk to somebody else, just to get some counsel, that's one thing. But don't cloak your desire for their counsel. Uh, don't cloak your gossip in a desire to get their counsel. You know, th- this is the old um, thing that I, I, I mention occasionally, and that is the, the old prayer request. You know, pray for this person who's got this deep sin that they're dealing with. And it's really just a gossip, you know, session. We have to be careful about that. If they've sinned against you, go and talk to them. If you need help, then you know get some help from someone. But don't do it for the purpose of trying to, you know, I'm the first one to know about this sin, and I want to be the one to tell other people about it. Fifth, when you do confront the offender, remember to act and speak in a spirit of gentleness. In gentleness. 
um, sometimes we can just come across very harshly and just come. We need to we need to be gentle because a gentle answer, Proverbs fifteen one says, gentle answer turns away what wrath, right? But a harsh word stirs up anger. So if there's something that they've done against you, if you want to stir things up, go to them harshly and just attack them, and you'll see anger stirred up within them. Okay, so there's lots of ways that we need to prepare ourselves. Um, now, before we move on to the next step in the procedure, let's think of two further points about this first step in Matthew. First, you may be wondering, must I go to my brother for every little offense? Well, most certainly not. Remember, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Love covers a multitude of what? Of sins, right? So, And Proverbs tells us that to overlook an offense is actually a glorious thing, and it demonstrates patience and forbearance on our part. So two questions you're at to ask yourself to know if this is serious enough for you to, to approach them. First, has the offense created an unreconciled state between the two of you? In other words, do you carry this offense with you from day to day? Or is this something that you can overlook? Is this something that you can forgive and move on? If the answer is yes, then you should probably uh, um, then you should probably not talk to them. Okay. If the answer is no, if you can't get over this issue, then go to the person. Secondly, is this sin dangerous to the offender? Okay. We could we could overlook lots of things that other people do. Maybe even some serious, gross sins that we need to be approaching somebody on. But. Is it harming the person? Is it something that's going to harm them? James writes, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Chapter 5, verse 20. So no matter what kind of sin it is, is it endangering them from their own spiritual life? Is it, is it causing them to move into a place of spiritual danger? Is it harming the reputation of Christ? We'll spend our entire class next week talking about what we should do when we're concerned for a brother or sister, but particularly when we don't know whether they committed a sin or not. Okay, So you might be thinking, well, I'm pretty sure they committed one. I'm not sure if I should go to them. We'll, we'll talk about that next week, how we can handle that. Um, so while Matthew 18 requires the wronged person to go and seek reconciliation, Matthew 5 requires the offender to go immediately Turn over to Matthew 5. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is very fascinating when you think about how serious God is about reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. Would someone read verses 23 and 24? All right, there's a mistake on your handout. It should be Matthew 5, not Luke 5 um, at the bottom. So I'll get on my secretary for that. I'm my own secretary for those, just so you know. Um, so if you're presenting an offering at the altar, what does that describe? An aspect of what? Of worship, right? 
if you're in the process of worshiping God and you have an offense against your brother, God is so serious about you reconciling that He calls for you to stop worshiping Him and get over and reconcile. Just stop. Stop the very act of worship. Go and reconcile to your brother. Isn't that amazing? How serious God is about reconciling. Okay, so while we need to seek reconciliation, we need to recognize this is not an insignificant matter. God is very serious about relationships between Christians. And so we need to critically and carefully examine our relationships with others before we come and worship, before we come to the Lord's table. There's something, is someone we need to reconcile with before we take of the Lord's Supper, before we worship God together. All right? Any questions on step one? Go to the offender. We'll handle a lot of problems if we just do that. Now, step two, take two or three. Or, I'm sorry, take one or two so that there are a total of two or three. Matthew 18, verse 16. It reads, But if he does not listen, so you've done step one, but if he does not listen, if he does, well, then it's over, right? These steps are irrelevant at that point. If he does not, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Remember the goal is, again, restoration. But if he doesn't listen on the first approach, then you need to take one or two. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this, I think. I think there's a, uh, first of all, it actually lends more weight to his sin. The first time it was just you that went to him and he didn't repent. But now he sees that there are two or three brothers or sisters in Christ who are, are standing there and giving witness to his sin. So the first one is to, to lend, uh, to, to, to put on a little bit more weight to the person uh, so they recognize the seriousness of the sin. The second is it actually serves as a witness for step three. Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, someone is condemned or confirmed. And so what happens is when the two or three are there, then they take that witness to the church, which is going to be step three. And now they say it's not just one person saying, you know, I, I have this, sin, this person sinned against me and I want to tell you about it. That doesn't work. Okay, They may have done that, but without two or three witnesses, it doesn't work. So... Um, Consider, consider, um, uh, con- consider the importance of this this next step. So once they they don't repent, then take one or two others with you. Ken. Not in this case. No, this is the witness their unrepentant state. So let's say a sin of, um, let's say a, uh, let's see. Let's say a person just assaulted another person. Okay, so some person assaulted me. I go to that person and say, you assaulted me. Okay, I've got a problem with that. You need to repent, whatever. And they don't. Now the next step is not that, um, okay, you need to watch them assault me. But instead, I'm just using a really bizarre example there. But now you have one or two witnesses. And I'm saying what you did to me was sinful and you need to repent. 
And what what they are watching for is uh, whether this person is repentant or not. The person says, no, I don't care what you say. Now, if it's a question of whether it happened or not, that's different. But the really thing they're watching for that they're going to give testimony to the church about is whether or not the person was unrepentant. That's what they're really looking for about the sin. So if it's assuming that they have agreed that the sin has actually occurred. And um, and they're basically lending credibility uh, to the witness. So obviously these are going to be believers. Okay, We're not just go grab some unbelievers that, that can be our witnesses before the church. Uh, this is something that's that actually keeps us out of the public courts. You know, Paul says, what a disgrace for you to handle internal conflicts in public courts with Gentiles. You know, handle them within your own church. Now, obviously, there are some things that are criminal, okay, and and we have to deal with those differently. I'm not talking about those. Um, but but what I am talking about is, is just a, some sort of sin that was done against a person. All right. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, the fact I would I would actually say because of the listen part at verse 6 at the beginning of verse 16, they will not listen. And what are they listening for? What's the what's the goal of the listening? That they'll repent. Not listen to I I don't think the idea there is that they'll listen to these that these facts are true. I think the response is if they'll listen to you because look at verse 15. If he listens to you, Again, I don't think that has anything to do with the facts being confirmed. I think that has to do with whether they're going to repent or not. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, if he refuses to listen to the church. Okay, so I think the idea of listening is not just listening to see if these facts are straight, but rather um, whether or not the, the person is repentant. So I think the testimony of two or three witnesses, the facts that they're looking for, are not facts about the case but actually facts about his unrepentance. Yeah. We'll talk about that uh towards the end of the class. Um so I'll I'll remember to I'll try to remember to bring that up at that point. Yep, go ahead. Well, I think it would actually, uh, I don't know necessarily, I, I wouldn't allow that person to ever come into the church. If a person's living with their, I mean, because a person who has actually come to Christ is willing to cut ties with the world. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but um, was, there, was there 
testimony or the profession of faith credible. And if it was, then we would expect some kind of drastic change to take place. And that one, I mean, those are that, that's what unbelievers do. Unbelievers live with, you know, live with other people that they're not married to. So that's what I would say. And if they're already a member of the church, and I would say, then church discipline would have to be immediate because First Corinthians five, you expel him. It doesn't even sound. It actually sounds like it skips through. We'll have to get to that here in just a second. Number three, tell it to the church. Okay, so again, if he doesn't repent, uh, then the next step is to take it before the church. And the goal here is give the church some time to go after this person. Again, lending more seriousness, uh, weight to their sin. And um, and hopefully they, they turn because they're recognizing that they've got a whole group of Christians who are now seemingly opposed to them. Really, they're not. They're on their side. They're on the offender's side trying to get them to turn to the truth. All right, so that's if a, sin, uh, if a person sins directly against you. Uh, then fourthly, treat him as an unbeliever. That's at the end of verse 17. Treat him as an unbeliever. Okay, so if he's gone through, if you've gone through all these steps with him and he still doesn't repent, then you have to treat him as an unbeliever. All right, what if we see a, a member sin against another member? Matthew 18 is directly for sins against us. That is, sins against me, sins against you. But what happens if we see one sin sin against another sin? Um, under those circumstances, do we have a biblical obligation to talk to that person about their sin? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore him gently. In Luke 17.3, it, uh, it says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So while we don't have any direct statement like we do here in Matthew 18, we have other passages that talk about us going after people and rescuing them in their sin, that are caught in their sin. Um, so how do we know when it's appropriate time to approach a brother or sister about their sin? Um, there's no hard and fast rules for this. So this is kind of just um, drawn from some wisdom from the Scriptures in general. This is again from Ken Sandy's book, Peacemaker. First, is the sin bringing significant dishonor to God so that it's a, a visible thing enough to um, cause the perception of other Christians to, to, um, to, di- to um, demean the name of Christ? Second, is the sin hurting others by causing them to be tempted or by setting a bad example for younger Christians? Third, could the sin lead to disunity in the body? And then fourth, is the sin seriously harming the offender by damaging his relationship with God? In other words, there's something that that is just going to, over time, that God's going to work on him and it's going to be taken care of. Or is, is he in danger of of um, you know falling away? All right. What if someone sins publicly against the entire church? What do we do with public sin? Turn to First Corinthians chapter five. I've already pointed to this a little bit, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Let's read uh, beginning in verse 1. It's actually reported there, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So apparently the church is actually becoming arrogant about this. So, you know, hey, God's grace abounds and even in this situation, God still loves us and all this. Verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then we would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, so what happens when a church member's sin is so open and apparent, serious and obvious? Okay, those are the two things we need to think about. Something that is serious and obvious. How do we handle it? Well, Paul seems to bypass steps one and two. You know, uh, actually... The, the first couple, yeah, the the first couple steps, and then just go, you know, you need to go all the way to steps three and four. Really, step four, just remove it from the church. I mean, he's already shown himself to to be living in sin in such a way that's not even mentioned among unbelievers, and that Christ's reputation is so much at stake that we need to guard our church and his reputation against that kind of sin. So you need to remove him right away. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no opportunity for him to be restored and that sort of thing. This is how our Constitution reads. In case of gross and flagrant violation of uh, of Christian conduct, that's our church Constitution, in case of gross and flagrant violation of Christian conduct, such as the Scriptures forbid, and after counsel by the pastor and deacon board, the accused, upon recommendation of the pastor and deacon board, and a vote of a simple majority of attending members at a business meeting, may be dismissed from church membership. Prior to the vote, the accused shall be advised by letter of the appending action, and thereby shall be advised of his right to appeal to the church body. So, in cases of gross and serious flagrant violations of Scripture, then we are to just you know, give them a warning, give them an opportunity to respond. But, but something that's so open and obvious, uh, it needs to be handled quickly. And um, this type of disciplinary action is the most drastic of the kinds that are offered in the Scripture. We excommunion ourselves with them. We no longer allow them to take part in the Lord's Supper. Um, many times this will not be an issue because of the shame that comes with someone who has to leave the church. And so they just you know, leave the area or go somewhere else. Or just kind of... but, but how do we interact with a person who, who has been disciplined from our church and then comes to church events? 
Okay, that is, when I say disciplined, I mean they, they've gone to, all the way to step four. We've removed them from our, from our membership list, and um, they're not, no longer allowed to take part in the Lord's Supper. How do we, what do we do if they come to church events like the Salad Supper or something? Well, look at first, verse 11 again. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. So, don't even... What's the command? The prohibition. Don't even associate with them. Now, we would hope that he would come to church. Actually, that's probably the best thing for him. He needs to be around Christians. And But remember, he's being treated like an unbeliever. So, we treat him like an unbeliever when he comes to our church. Not as a brother or sister in Christ. We treat him like an unbeliever. But, but um, uh, what does he say at the end of the verse? Verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. So we don't take part in, in fellowship with him as if nothing's wrong. We have to be careful about that. Um, if they have been disciplined from the church, we want to make it very clear that we don't condone what they do. Until you get right about your sin, you can't have proper fellowship with this church. You can come to this church. Please do. But you can't have casual, relaxed fellowship. Alright? What was your first question before? Do you, I, I forgot it already. I was going to remember it, but I forgot it. It's about the, uh, if, we, if we're not sure. Okay, yeah, if they deny it. Okay, um... I think we're going to touch that here when we get to leaders. So let me quickly get to there. We're way past time. But um, all right, what about a church leader? Uh, turn to First Timothy five. First Timothy five, verse nineteen. Paul gives special caution to protect against false charges against pastors or elders. And here's what he says in verse 17. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation, verse 19, against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So, Here's where I think we have an implication about non-elder sins. Okay, and that is that for an elder, for a pastor, it has to be on the witness or it has to be on the authority of two or three witnesses. No person can come and uh, uh, and, and lay a claim against a pastor and say, well, th- I, I know he did this. I mean, if he doesn't admit to it and... She doesn't have he or she doesn't have another witness. Then it can't be, it can't be taken by the church. And there's lots of reasons for that. Not because he's an elite status or anything like that, but I think primarily it's because the church has already recognized him as being. What's the main responsibility for him in that position of leadership? Any idea? And he is above what? Above reproach. So when someone comes and brings a reproach against him, and that can't be allowed to, to, to stand. And so there's a serious um, problem for someone who comes with an accusation on their own. It has to become with two or three witnesses. And, um, and if, if after two or three witnesses, verse 20 tells us that it needs to be handled publicly. 
Um, you know, this this is very much different. So there's two sides of the coin. Like say, well, he's not going to uh, have to deal with a lot of different sins because it's only one person, or because it's he's only done it against one person, or only one person knows about it. But the the flip side of that is every single time he he does something that's of of serious case, and usually it's probably only one time because he's going to be gone. But it's going to be handled publicly. It needs to be addressed so that other people are fearful of sinning. Um, so I think the implication in that is that um, that that a, a non-pastor, non-elder could actually have a charge laid against him if there's only one witness. Now, um, what do we do if, if that takes place? What happens if you were to witness you know, me in a serious sin. How do you handle that? I mean, is Matthew 18 unrelated to, to me? Can you not go to me in my sin? Again, I think you still handle the, my sin the same way you handle any other member's sin. I'm just like you. I need to be addressed with my sin. The only thing is, you can't bring it publicly until you have the two or three uh, two or three witnesses. Um, but what happens if you see me caught in sin and it needs to be handled publicly. In other words, it's serious, egregious sin. Uh, well, I would suggest to you that that, um, that that it has to be done in such a way that there are two or three witnesses. So, you know, there, let's just take a hypothetical example where an elder makes an inappropriate advance, a pastor makes an inappropriate advance toward a woman in the church. And the woman's the only witness. Well, what is he free? He can't, you know, no one can do anything to him. Well, I think it would be appropriate for her. She can't take it to the church, but I think it would be appropriate for her to talk to other leaders in the church or other people who can then address him. It's not going to be an official. Um, it's not going to be officially recognized by the church, but it it's, it can be handled. And you know, we're going to talk about more of church discipline tonight when we uh, look at Second Thessalonians, the end of the book. Um, but the nature of sin is that it always finds a way to the surface, doesn't it? You know, so if a person is living in sin, they can hide it for a while, but eventually it's going to come out. Um, eventually it's going to come out. And so, so don't think, you know, man, I, I really want to I really want to corner this guy. I really want to, you know, I want, I really want to make sure other people know what I know and that sort of thing. Uh, Paul uses some pretty heavy words. Don't take an accusation against an elder by two or three witnesses. What's the danger of that, do you think? What would happen if you had somebody that was just, you know, by nature, they're just a divisive person? They just wanted to go around to churches and cause problems. Could they not just make accusations against elders and the church would have to believe them? See, uh, Paul's guarding against the reputation of the church and the reputation of the pastors who have been called by Holy Spirit-indwelled believers, right? They're not going to be all perfect. I'm not trying to put a hedge around all pastors because, sadly, many pastors will fail in this area. But we do have to protect the name of Christ and the, the way in which He sets out for us to to uh, handle these things. All right, I was going to leave you with a quotation um, about the seriousness of sin, but we don't have time. Do you have any questions?
to be quick. Bill. Yeah. 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 Yeah, a lot of these things can be handled if we just have, you know, people who are willing to handle conflict. Sadly, the thing that we like to handle least, I think, in life is conflict. We like to avoid conflict at all costs. But, but it actually saves us from greater danger down the road. It saves that person. It saves our church. It saves all of us. So, you know, we see a sin, go to the person and, um, and restore them. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Um, all right. Thank you for your attention. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, guard our church and lead us towards righteousness. Help us to wisely and lovingly practice church discipline, both formative and corrective. In Jesus' name, amen.